I'm sure that many parents have had experiences like this, that you are beginning to get your child ready for bed, and your child turns to you and says, Mom, I forgot, we're having a class party tomorrow. I signed up for cupcakes. Mom clearly would be a little exasperated by that revelation, wondering how something this important would fail to be communicated at a, in a timely fashion. Mom probably expresses that exasperation just a little bit. We have subsequent tears, of course, because the child pleads, Mom, please, she apologizes, she pleads and says, Mom, I, am, I need those cupcakes tomorrow, I promised. We all know how the story ends, right? Eventually, Mom will tell her daughter, I will bake the cupcakes tonight. You go to bed. They will be ready in the morning. And the girl immediately brings up and goes to bed because she's entrusted her mom with this important task of preparing cupcakes for the school party. Now, I checked with Grace last night, and she told me she cannot remember anything like this ever happening in our house. So this is not a historical story. I don't believe Katie was ever responsible for doing something like this. Still, it is a scenario that's familiar enough that we can all imagine it happening. We understand that children will entrust important things to their parents, even if they fail to communicate all the time. Well, this morning, I want us to see if that the principle of entrusting something important, something critical to someone else, that is a biblical idea. We're coming up to our final sermon in our series on developing genuine love. We've been working on this series for months now, and Pastor Aaron has also in the meantime been preparing a three-week series that he will begin next Sunday. Until my visa was denied for India, I was planning to be gone next Sunday, so Pastor Aaron will have his series next week. But we've been looking at this series since April. We've been looking at the idea of, of love as God defines it, based on the list that, that God provides through Paul in Romans chapter 12. We've taken Paul's list in Romans 12, item by item, and, and examined each one of those to see what genuine love would be. We saw in verse 9 where Paul starts his list, it starts with the heading, love without hypocrisy. What essentially follows then is a bullet list of things that make up this non-hypocritical love, what I'm calling genuine love. What are the things that God says are required for love? We need these various elements. These are the characteristics that compose it. Now, if you haven't already done so, turn your Bibles to Romans 12, and, and we'll read this list one more time. And unlike the previous weeks where I just read down to where we were at, we'll read all the way through the list this morning as Paul presents it. Our title, Love Without Hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. By now, hopefully, you've checked all these off in your life because you've thought about them and worked on them and, and developed them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. 
Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Hopefully, as you keep thinking that list, you see more and more check marks as we read on down. But probably, if you're honest with yourself, there's some items missing as check. This is the list of genuine love, and we found as we've looked at this series, these items present challenges for us. Generally, the, the hard part has not been understanding what the item meant. We, we, we found that was fairly straightforward as we went through the list. The hard part comes in actually putting that check mark that, yeah, I've got this in my life. I'm doing this item. That's where the challenge comes, living out the implication of the individual items. We've come to realize that these things are not natural characteristics in our lives. They don't show up naturally. That's because these are supernatural characteristics. These are things produced by the Spirit of God in the lives of those who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. As I've said in previous weeks, if that's not you, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, then you will not live up to the characteristics of this list. You cannot. You don't have the source, the supernatural source that's required to give this supernatural component to your life. You need to change your situation. And you can. You can come to know Jesus Christ as Savior today. I encourage you to talk to me after the service. Send me an email if, if you're not here, if you're listening online, or if you hear a recording of this, send me an email. I would love to share with you how you can know Jesus as Savior. This list is a list that Paul gives to Christians saying, here's the outworking of salvation. So you need to have salvation to start the work. You need to know Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, the one who died for your sins. Paul is not attempting to produce behavior modification here. This is not something that a psychologist can tell you, here's what you need to do, and you can put this in your life just by trying to change your behavior. Paul's focus is on believers. He's focusing on those who are being transformed by salvation, by the Spirit's work in life. We are the ones who are display in our lives genuine Christian love. Our attention this week is on the last three verses. Last week we looked at verse 18, so we're picking up in verse 19, and we'll cover the, the final three verses in one, in one setting today. I know that comes as a surprise after some weeks we took two words, and now we're doing three verses, but that's what we're doing today. My goal is, is to help us see one principle from each of these verses that then combine to give us an overall principle that, that really wraps up and completes our understanding of genuine love as God defines genuine love. So let's begin looking at verse 19. From verse 19, we see that faith requires us to entrust wrongs to God. That's what faith requires, that we entrust wrongs to God. When I looked at this the first time, and I read through this list, it, it seemed somewhat unexpected to me to encounter the, an admonition to resist taking one's own vengeance in a listing that deals with 
genuine love. Vengeance and love seem to have nothing to do with each other. It's unexpected, maybe, to encounter this, but it's not unnecessary. The admonition that involves taking vengeance here against resisting that, the admonition that we ought to resist vengeance, that's a necessary precursor to the positive action that comes in the next verse. Yet, before we look at the positive side of things, let's make sure we understand the admonition of verse 19 first. Several times in this series, we've hit on the idea that people will wrong us. That that should be no surprise by now. We we live in a sin-broken world. We're surrounded by sin-filled people. There will be wrongs committed against us. The reality is that we will experience that over and over and over. In verse 12, we were told to persevere in tribulation. That was one of the characteristics of genuine love. Tribulation is hard. In verse 14, we're to bless those who persecute us. Verse 17, we're told to not return evil for evil. There is no reason that we should expect that this world will be friendly toward us. That is not going to be our experience as believers. Our experience is going to be a hard one from the world around us. Apparently, though, there is another thing that we should expect. We should expect that we will have an instinctive desire to take revenge on those who wrong us. That's what we're seeing here in verse 19. In fact, we can probably expect that this will be a very strong desire because Paul goes out of his way when he's admonishing us to resist this urge. He goes out of his way to call us beloved. Paul throws that in because he is asking us to do something that is not natural at all. We have no inkling whatsoever to resist the urge to take vengeance. When people wrong us, we want to go right at them. We want to strike back. He says, beloved. He's reminding the Romans that he's writing to that he cares for them. But Paul's going beyond that. When he says, beloved, he's reminding us that God cares for us. God cares for us so much that he's now adopted us as his children through our faith in the sacrificial work of his son. God cares for us. And for that reason, we cannot allow the strong desire of revenge to cause us to forget who we are. To forget we are beloved by God. This means that regardless of how strong this natural desire is to take vengeance, God is calling us to resist it. He's calling us to hold back on that which is our natural instinct. Remember, we've talked about this many times too. What is natural is what is sinful. Our depravity goes to the very core of our our being. Our natural instinct always goes towards sin. We have to retrain our natural instinct to do that which is supernatural. So rather than taking revenge on those who wrong us, we're to turn the matter over to God. Look how Paul words it. He says, leave room, or literally give give a place for wrath. The, The picture that Paul creates is that we are to intentionally step back 
Step back from taking revenge so that there's this open area that wrath can, can operate in. The, the picture that comes to my mind, the image is, is kind of like when you have two boxers in a ring. And, and one of those boxers starts getting in trouble because the other one is just landing a bunch of blows. And, and he's getting in trouble. Sometime when that happens, the referee will jump in between the two. He will physically put himself into the place between those boxers so that there's no longer room for the one boxer to keep throwing punches. He can't get to the other person. Well, essentially, if we're taking revenge, we are not leaving enough room for wrath to swing its blow. It's like we've jumped in the middle and we're taking up the space that wrath needs. It's when we get out of the way that wrath can operate. From the quotation Paul gives us when he says there in verse 19, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. He's quoting Deuteronomy 32:35. So clearly from that quotation, we know the wrath that we are to give space to is God's wrath. We're to get out of the way so that God can bring his wrath down upon those who have earned it. Of course, I hope we realize that God's wrath will come at the time that God has determined. Part of our challenge is we want instant gratification. You know, as I've said before, when that microwave has to be set for 30 seconds, that's far too long. We need a more powerful microwave, right? We want instant gratification. We want people to get their due right now. We don't always appreciate that God is patient and long-suffering. We don't appreciate that, that God's plan often includes delayed wrath, with the one exception of when it's us that really deserves that wrath. Then God should be as patient as he wants to be, we're glad he was patient enough so that we did not receive his wrath and instead had time to hear the gospel and respond. We love God's patience and long-suffering for us, but not for those who deserve it. We're wronged and we want that dealt with right now. And for that reason, we want to jump back into the middle of things and, and deal with it ourselves rather than wait for God. Faith requires that we wait, that we wait for God and trusting our wrongs to him. Faith requires that we trust that God will set the eternal scales of justice into perfect balance once again. Everything will be right. The appropriate amount of wrath needed to make that happen will fall, but will fall according to God's timing, not ours. From verse 19, we learn this first idea. Faith requires us to entrust wrongs to God. We, we have to do that so that we release our thirst for vengeance and that then allows us to move on to the positive action of verse 20. Faith releases us to do good to those who wrong us. It releases us to do good to those who wrong us. We instinctively want retribution to come down on those who wrong us. As Christians, Christians who are seeking to show genuine love, Christians who want the supernatural love of Christ that we've received to flow through us, we are to do the exact opposite. Rather than retribution, we rain down kindness. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Let, let's be honest. There, there is little that we could do that would be more counterintuitive than this. Do good to those who do wrong to us. As people who naturally place ourselves in the center of worship. That's who we are as sinners. We want to be the center of everything. We want to worship ourselves. We want to ensure that we are the most important person in the universe. The last thing we are naturally inclined to do is to show kindness who is spurned to see that we're the center of everything. Let's make this real. We, we may try to avoid the practical aspect uh, of what Paul is, is telling us here by defining the word enemy here as someone who, who openly despises and hates us. You know, a, a real enemy, one who has the gun ready to go to take us out. We may have people in our lives that, that fit that category, that hate us to an absolute degree, but most likely we don't interact with those people too much. We, day in and day out, we tend to design our lives so that we're, as much as possible, we avoid those kinds of people, those who are openly hostile toward us. But what about those who are closest to you? Those sinful people that are close to you. It might be your spouse. Your spouse is close to you, but you know what? Your spouse is still a sinful person. Your spouse can become an enemy in the sense that this is one you should show kindness to rather than retribution, but you don't want to. There, there are times when your spouse, that this person who has promised to love you, will do something that hurts you deeply. Or it may be your parent. It may be your child. It may be your closest friend. It might just be a thoughtless word. It might be a selfish act. It might be an oblivious act, but how could someone who knows me so well be so oblivious? But it will happen. Just ask Grace. She can assure you that I have numerous times fulfilled my role as a sinner and wronged her in many ways. Well, when this happens, are you going to make your spouse pay? Your best friend? Your parent? Are you going to get even? After all, you know how you can hurt that person. You know how you can hurt your spouse. You know how you can hurt your best friend. Are you going to put up an emotional wall between you and your spouse so that, that there will be no further hurt? Well, that's really just form of retribution because you're keeping the, the barrier in place between you. Are you going to keep a mental record so that you can throw it in their face when the time is just perfect to do so. You know an opportune moment will come down the wall when, when they bring something up and you can say, yeah, but you did this and this and this and this. Will you use the silent treeper? Will you give open anger? We can understand any of these responses because these are natural responses. These are what resonate with us. Genuine love requires that we do good to those who wrong us. None of these responses line up with the response of genuine love. Genuine love, we are to do good because we choose to display our faith in the situation. We can do good because we turn our wrongs over to God. 
And for that reason, we're released from holding on to them. They're God's now. This wrong is now between God and the other person because we've simply turned over to God. Our goal becomes showing the love of Christ through our actions so that we are pleasing God. Of course, Paul explains in Ephesians 4.32 that we are to forgive others in this manner because this simply reflects the way that we've been forgiven in Christ. Whatever wrongs we might forgive, it's far less than the wrong that we've committed against God when we rebelled against the holy God with our sins. No one else will ever wrong us to that level because our wrong sent Christ to the cross. Here in verse 20, Paul explains that when we do this counterintuitive thing of doing good to those who wrong us, he says, we heap burning coals on his head. In in verse 20, Paul's quoting Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. But there's not agreement in what he means by this last phrase. What does it mean to heap burning coals on his head? Many commentators, maybe even the majority, suggest that that what Paul is saying is that when we do good to those who wrong us, we will make them ashamed of their conduct. That explanation seems logical. The, the problem is that the phrase heaping burning coals is, is not uncommon in the Old Testament. Every time that phrase is used, it's a negative metaphor for God's judgment. It seems as if what Paul is suggesting is that doing good to those who wrong us serves in some sense to increase their judgment. The the way that would work is that their failure to respond to our goodness, if that's what they do, if they double down in their sinful hearts, if they double down on their previous action, and, and rather than responding to our good with good and kind, well, that just simply compounds the wrath of God. It hardens their sinful hearts. When someone responds to kindness, with ongoing enmity, sin is compounded. So whichever way we choose to understand verse 20, we can debate the end here, but what is clear is what we're to do. We may not be clear how it works out in in God's perspective of, of divine justice, but it's clear what we're to do. We're to do good to those who wrong us. So how are you doing with this aspect of genuine love? You maybe have some items on the list already that are lacking check marks, but how about here? This aspect of faith, are you a don't-tread-on-me kind of person? A person who gets even quickly? Remember, Jesus says we're to turn the other cheek when someone slaps us. Our joy is to come in doing good to those who hate us. Our joy does not come in planning retribution. Our joy is to come in showing the love of Christ to those who don't deserve it. Just like we experienced the love of Christ when we surely did not deserve it. Is your faith releasing you to do good? If not, then your faith is a deficient faith. You need to confess your failure. You need to to pray that the Holy Spirit will infuse your faith with his promised power. As a Christian, we we cannot look at this failure in our lives uh, to to do good to those who wrong us and, and simply say, oh, well, that's just how I'm wired. Yes, you're wired as a sinner. Stop it. We are to do good 
to those who wrong us. Faith releases us to do good to those who wrong us. That's the principle we find here in verse 20. The principle that comes from our final verse is that faith allows us then to overcome evil with genuine love. We can overcome evil with genuine love. Back in verse 9, the very first item on our list is abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And Paul now finishes the list looping back again to the concepts of good and evil. Evil is always trying to overcome us. It's trying to conquer us. The way that we conquer evil, the way that we overcome evil is with good. Genuine love is good. The only way that we will ever do what is good, the only way that we will display genuine love is by exercising faith. Faith alone is what allows us to do what is counterintuitive to our nature. Counterintuitive means we don't comprehend how it works. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem natural. It's faith. Faith lets us overcome evil. Faith lets us overcome evil with genuine love. That's the idea that that comes from the final verse here of Paul's list. This list of genuine love. Faith allows us to overcome evil with genuine love. Of course, in the immediate context here, the evil is that, that evil that comes to us from those who hate us, what they inflict on us. We can choose to strike back, or we can return evil for evil by doing that, or we can choose to return good, which is to overcome evil. Paul's letter is dealing with our salvation. This whole letter they wrote, this, this book of Romans that we call it, is dealing with our salvation, what salvation is, and how it will transform our lives. Paul, as he, he wrote back in, in verse one of or verse seventeen of chapter one, he, he wrote, Our salvation is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, is an ongoing work of faith. Salvation is through faith, it's revealed by faith, and that does something in us. In, in verse one of chapter twelve, we're admonished that, that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, a living and holy sacrifice. What what we cannot forget in all of this is that we have a choice to make when evil comes at us. There is one option, and only one option, of all the choices that may present themselves, though, that is consistent with our salvation. Those of us who are to live from faith to faith, those who present our bodies as living sacrifice, have only one option when evil comes at us that it is consistent with our faith. We must choose to show genuine love. God saved us in Christ so that we can overcome evil. We are saved by faith. We are called to live by faith. As verse 2 in this chapter says, we are to be transformed by faith, living our lives according to the will of God. As we put this all together, the way I'd express the the final principle that really sums up this whole list of genuine love culminating in our verses is that a life of transformed faith is a life of genuine love. Our faith has not transformed us unless our faith is producing genuine love. Genuine love is evidence of, of transformation. 
is evidence of our faith. A life of transformed faith is a life of genuine love. Doing good to those who wrong us is counterintuitive, yet, yet the same is true of every aspect of genuine love on that long list now that we've looked at in this series. Genuine love is, is counterintuitive through and through. We cannot see how it will benefit us be, because genuine love is entirely others-focused. There is no benefit to us. Genuine love requires that, that we live by faith, knowing that life by faith is what pleases God, because we want to live lives that are God-focused, not self-focused. As we conclude the series, let me ask you, are you living by faith? Is your life a life of transformed faith? Faith is not limited to what we believe. Faith includes what we do. Yes, we, we, we certainly must believe the right things of doctrine. We, we must believe the truths of the Christian gospel to be saved. Such belief, however, will have a transforming effect on us. Our, our transformed lives will become lives of genuine love for others. They, they will be non-hypocritical lives. So let's look at the list again. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Are you doing these things? Are you doing them? It's easy to fall into the trap of feeling pretty good about ourselves because we believe the right things. We know the right things. But are we doing anything because of what we know? Showing genuine love takes effort. Showing genuine love takes time. Showing genuine love takes sacrifice. We have to center our lives around the needs of others rather than around our own desires. For, for 19 weeks, we've looked at the items on this list. Has anything changed in your life? James 1.22 says that we are to prove ourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. If nothing's changed in your life over the last 19 weeks as we've looked at this list, then you are living a deluded life. You're living a deluded life. A delusion that transformation is not really part of your faith. Once again, let me appeal to you. We should be sick and tired of 
the weak, empty, shadow version Christianity that is, is feeling so much of an American church right now. We should be sick and tired of the weak, empty, shadow version of Christianity that has consumed too many years of many of our lives. It's time to seek real Christianity. Christianity that, that transforms our lives. If you see changes are needed in your life, if you look at this list and you say, man, I have way too many blanks. My life is not being transformed as it ought. If you see that need in your life, then maybe as we have our final hymn here in just a moment, you need to spend your time sitting in your pew and pray. Pray that the Spirit would bring that conviction into a reality that produces a transformation in your life. Don't leave here just saying, yep, I need to do something, but I have no idea what. So I'll fall back into my habit tomorrow and continue to live my week as I always live. Make a change. You've seen for 19 weeks what God requires of genuine love. A life of transformed faith is a life of genuine love. This morning we've concluded the series. We've looked at these last three verses of chapter 12, and we see these three principles. From verse 19, faith requires us to entrust wrongs to God. From verse 20, faith releases us to do good to those who wrong us. From verse 21, faith then allows us to overcome evil with genuine love. When you put that all together, we see a life of transformed faith is a life of genuine love. Let's be men who live transformed lives showing genuine love to others. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do a great work in us and among us today where we have failed to be transformed as we ought, I pray that you would bring great conviction upon us. Father, will you give us opportunities to show genuine love? I pray that you would cause us to be eagerly grasping the opportunities. May we live lives that light up the world around us because of the genuine love that shows forth from us. May we be men and women who are joyfully magnifying Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.